Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. We will be starting a new season of Jury Duty on February 28th with our examination of a new trial, and we will have more information about that on this podcast feed in the coming days. However, before we start Jury Duty Season 4, we are revisiting the trial of Robert Durst, which we covered in Seasons 1 and 2 of this podcast. Jury Duty has secured exclusive interviews with two of the jurors who were part of the Los Angeles panel that convicted Robert Durst of the murder of his good friend, Susan Berman. In our last episode, we began our dialogue with jurors Carmen Kliteka and John Okanishi, covering their experience during the jury selection process up until the first time they each saw Robert Durst. In this episode, we discuss their memories of the first set of opening statements in the trial back in March of 2020. At the end of the episode, we will relive some of the key moments that they mention by playing excerpts of the trial audio that they reference. We begin with my conversation with Carmen Kliteka about the moments that she remembers from the initial opening statements in the trial. That's coming up right after the break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We begin our exploration of how the jurors experienced the lawyer's initial opening statements by returning to my conversation with juror number 12 and foreperson of the panel, Carmen Kliteka. What do you remember of the prosecution's opening back in March of 2020? So remember, I, I said that I, I had never heard of, of this person or, or what he did, or I, I knew nothing and I knew nothing about the story or the victims or anything. I was a blank slate. And I remember hearing about Kathy. And the moment I heard that she was a fourth-year medical student about to graduate med school, that, Carrie, that hit me like a ton of bricks. I, I had no idea that she was a medical student. I mean, not that it would have been different, but it was significant for me because I could relate to her. And it took me back to February of my fourth year of med school. And such a stressful time. It's so, so much. And then to add, you know, everything that she had endured, I was shaken. I thought about her that night and in that that stayed with me just knowing that this is who she was and just changed things changed my perspective my my perception i knew it was something with his wife and i just you know imagined you know she was just like somebody who had nothing in common with me that i could never relate to and then when i heard that it just changed everything and You would have heard that fairly early on in John Lewin's opening statement. And so having had that shift in perception, tell me more about some of the 
evidence that John Lewin said was going to be brought during the course of the trials. What other things do you remember from the opening statement? When he said that he was going to show us how he went about getting rid of her medical textbooks and how he put like all her stuff in the trash compactor. It was quite powerful. If I would have known the story beforehand, it would have been easier. But it was just so shocking for me. And I remember getting this, this knot in my throat and, and my, my eyes just welling up. And just like they, they are now. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not like a, an emotional person. I don't tear up. But this, this, was, this really struck a chord with me. I think it was just because I was able to relate with her for, you know, the whole having gone through through uh, med school because, you know, it's med school's hard enough and you, you need a, like a lot of support. And this poor woman didn't, not only did she not have the support that she needed, she was also being abused. And even through all of that, Carrie, she was able to, to get some outstanding evaluations. And it's not easy to get outstanding evaluations in medical school. And can you imagine that how difficult it would have been to get in outstanding evaluations under those conditions? I mean, to me, that tells me so much about the person that Kathy was. I imagine who, what kind of person she was. And when I think about about that, I also imagine what sort of impact she would have had on her community and how many people she would have helped and just what a huge loss this is. Her loss wasn't just, you know, Kathy Durst is gone and her family's gonna miss her. It's it's not just them that were robbed of of her, it was the whole community and I think a whole bunch of patients who she would have helped. Did you have this kind of emotional response in the moment when you were hearing this? I was shocked and I had a huge lump in my throat and I did feel my eyes starting to well up a little bit and I just took a deep breath and I I just kept myself under control and I did not want anyone to notice anything. I especially, I did not want to give anyone any indication of what I was thinking, where I was. I tried very hard to have a completely unbiased look on my face. And I didn't want to give any indication to anyone either way. And as John Lewin continued to proceed through his statement of what he believed the evidence would show, Did you find things like some of the statements from Robert Durst, the admissions of having lied about going to the mayor's house for a drink, his admission of having written the cadaver note, what John Lewin said the testimony of Nick Chavin would show about Robert Durst's admission to Nick Chavin that he killed Susan Berman? How did the accumulation of that impact the way you went into the defense's opening statement? I was thinking to myself, if this pans out with all this evidence that's going to be shown, and if it's and if it holds, the defense is going to have a very difficult job. 
how in the world are they going to defense against that? That's, that's what I was thinking. You know, I had an, an open mind and my intent was to look at everything and see how it holds up. And then when the defense got up and delivered their opening, I would imagine that when they started to talk about Kathy Durst's alleged cocaine addiction, that must have had an impact on you. It did. I was, I was shocked. I, I could identify with her. But when that was brought up, this other side, I could not identify with. So I was, I was interested to hear more. And I was interested to find out if it was really true. By the end of their opening statement, did you still feel the way you did at the end of the prosecution's opening statement, that they had a very tough hill to climb to prove that their client was not guilty? I did feel that. And I also thought, well, you know, these guys are the best. I'm really interested to see what they come up with, because this is going to be quite the challenge. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We now move on to my conversation with juror number two, John Okanishi, and get his reflections on the March 2020 opening statements in the trial of Robert Durst. First, let me ask you your general memory of John Lewin's opening statement in the trial. The interesting thing about the opening statements, gosh, was, you know, how how long it took for the opening statements. I'm, you know, used to, you know, the opening statements from uh, prior juries that I've ser- served on, you know, both the prosecution and defense doing it, um, you know, within a day. Where in this case, you know, it took, you know, several days and the amount of information uh, that we that we took in, especially from the prosecution side was, you know, there, there was a lot of detail, you know, to take in. If anything that, you know, I remember was just just the length of time that they that John Lewin spent on the opening. I want to try to get a sense of your memory of your feelings about the case and about the evidence as you heard them in that opening statement. So during the opening statement, you know, I could tell that there was a lot of detail to this case, you know, which you might expect when they said, we're going to spend five months on this. And, you know, they talked about all the numerous witnesses that we heard about. From my, the standpoint of uh, my note taking, I, I focused primarily on the um, pieces of evidence or especially the arguments that I would consider necessary to decide someone was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, you know, with the with the assumption that they they were already innocent. So I was not I was not taking mounds and mounds of uh, of notes, but I only focused on you know those key points. I wonder, trying to go back those two years, if 
there were any things that really struck you during the course of that initial presentation of snippets of evidence during the opening statement that struck you and that made you think, okay, I really want to see what the defense has to say about that. And I believe this was during the opening statement in 2020. There was, of course, the discussion that Robert Durst more or less confessed to the murder of Susan Berman on tape as he was uh, inadvertently recorded off off camera during the filming of The Jinx. I mean, I thought that was just overwhelming, you know, uh, piece of evidence, uh, you know, uh, a confession. And then um, I believe it was stated during the opening that Robert Durst had said to Nick Chavin, to, you know, was either her or me, I had no choice. And, you know, if we were to believe, you know, Nick Chavin as a credible uh, a witness, you know, as we would hear more, more detail uh, later in the trial, I mean, that that's a second, you know, confession. So I, I thought, you know, just going into that, you know, those two key pieces of the evidence were very, you know, overwhelming. And for myself, once we, you know, were got into deliberation, probably two of three, you know, major pieces of evidence where, you know, I found uh, Robert Durst guilty. So those two things were, to me, very, very significant pieces of evidence made during the opening. Do you remember during the initial opening statement, your reaction to seeing the clips from Robert Durst's interviews in the jinx and what your impressions of Durst was from those clips? My my initial impression impressions is that he was a very very you know arrogant person, not a very uh, you know likable person. You know, is is he guilty of murder just because he you know he, he's coming across as I'm sorry, being an asshole? Well, you know, no, that's not enough. But certainly, you know, that's the way he came across. And as you know, we got further into the. Uh, the trial and when he would, you know, take the stand and was being uh, interviewed and, you know, cross-examined, I, I'd, you know, a lot of those initial impressions that I had during opening based upon those excerpts from the jinx uh, just, you know, became even more fortified. I mean, initially, you know, he was, he was, an, he was an arrogant, he was a jerk. And then later, you know, I come to realize, you know, he's speaking, he was, he spe- it was almost like he was speaking with the arrogance of somebody who got away with murder. And so, you know, at that point, he has nothing to lose or nothing to fear. Do you remember your impressions of the defense narrative as presented in their opening statement? Yes. Initially, the key points were that, you know, he's a sick old man, that there was no physical evidence to show that he was guilty of the murder and then they also talked a lot about Asperger's, that he was a victim of Asperger's. And that was a reason where, you know, some of his his rude behavior is is coming from. And the reason why I, I, I remember that specifically is as we got into the trial, I truly expected during the trial to have some expert witness come in and t- spend several days telling us all about what Asperger's were. So I was actually really quite shocked that that never came up. It never happened. And so I always wondered, whatever happened to that? I mean, we heard that during the defense's opening, but it was never brought up again. What about when Dick DeGaron got up during his opening and 
he said, Bob Durst didn't kill Susan Berman and he doesn't know who did. He found the body and he ran like he always does. Do you remember first hearing him say that and what your impressions were? Again, you know, as jurors were trying to keep an open mind, and I thought to myself, well, you know, he could be this guy. You know, they, the documentary was called, you know, Jinx. This guy is Robert Durst's jinx by bad luck. So as much as, you know, you would think he was guilty or, you know, only a guilty person would run away, right? That's what conventional wisdom would tell you that, you know, as, as jurors, you know, we, we have to give him, you know, the benefit of the doubt that maybe he, he was, you know, running away, but that doesn't necessarily, you know, make him guilty. So that, that's kind of the mindset. I, I'm assuming the rest of my jurors, we all had to, uh, force ourselves into, you know, unless we heard, you know, compelling evidence, you know, stating otherwise. Well, you also heard during both opening statements that Robert Durst also acknowledged writing the cadaver note. Do you remember when you first heard that concession by the defense? That fact is interesting only because during the opening, during the opening statement, the stipulation that Robert Durst admitted to writing, you know, the cadaver note, that was one piece of evidence that I, I don't really recall from the opening. It wasn't until, you know, we came back from the over-year recess that, you know, they were talking about, oh, yes, uh, yeah, Ro- Robert Durst, you know, admitted that he had written the cadaver note. And then I, you know, thought, gosh, was that actually part of the the opening statement. I hadn't actually recalled it back then, but, you know, certainly, you know, it became uh, a very significant piece of evidence that, you know, weighed upon me uh, once the trial resumed. We are now going to relive some of the impactful moments mentioned by Carmen and John in their reflections on the opening statements. First, we will hear John Lewin's description of Kathy Durst that Carmen mentioned made such a profound impression on her. The evidence is going to show that at the time that she was killed, Kathy was a fourth-year medical student. She's almost a doctor. She's going to graduate in a matter of months. And the evidence is going to show that Kathy's a strong woman. She's nobody's uh, doormat. But the evidence is also going to show that, like a lot of strong women, she was a victim of someone who was abusing her. And she chose, made the decision to remain in the relationship. And the evidence is going to show that that decision is going to cost her her life. January 6, 1982, the evidence will show this is now 24 days before Bob Durst is going to kill her. On that day, she goes to Jacoby Medical Center. You're going to hear evidence that Jacoby Medical Center was a part of Albert Einstein, the medical school Kathy went to. So Kathy, who's a young medical student, who's actually doing rotations at Albert Einstein, she's doing rotations at this hospital. The evidence is going to show that she literally goes there and she explains to them that she has been a a victim of domestic violence. Now, the evidence is going to show that she does not tell the doctor that Bob Durst is the one who did it. And 
again, the evidence will demonstrate that, um, like a, a lot of women in that situation, she was afraid and embarrassed, and she didn't reveal who her bad was. So she goes to the hospital. She is treated. Bob Durst is later questioned about this by Andy Jarecki in 2010. Mr. Durst is going to be confronted about that visit to the hospital. But the way that it is done, Mr. Jarecki does not show Mr. Durst the information that he has. He doesn't let Mr. Durst know, here's what I know. He asks him about it. And at that time, this is what Mr. Durst said. Did you ever create any marks on her face, or did no, you create? No, a, I did... never saw any marks on her face, and I wouldn't hit her in the face. Did you, if you were going to have a physical altercation with her, what would typically happen? Would Pushing you... and shoving and get out of here, or whatever it was, that would be the physical altercation of falling down now and then, but. Uh, I never hit her in the face, I never saw anything on her face, and neither did anybody else ever see anything on her face. Well, the evidence will show, as you heard from Cliff, that Mr. Durst did not deny that he would assault Kathy. What he said was, I never hit her in the face, and if you watch, he then made a move punching forward with his fists. That's what he was confronted with, but that's not the end of the story. So your, uh, your sense of this Jacoby Hospital visit is that if the guys at Jacoby Hospital wrote a report that said that she had... I never uh, saw any such report, and the police didn't either. And the way I found out about Jacoby Hospital was not from Kathy, but after Kathy disappeared, then it was brought up either by Gilberti or the police, and they asked me the questions you're asking me. So Mr. Durst absolutely denied that that incident never happened. However, there's a report from the hospital, January 6, 1982. You're going to actually hear from the physician who treated Cap. If you look at the report, what the report says is 29-year-old female with history of blunt trauma to left side of the of face. Patient allegedly slapped with hand. That's what she told the doctor. You can hear from that doctor. That doctor's going to tell you that back in 1982, it was not unusual for women to come in, professional women, and to not identify the abuser. And you're going to learn something else that Kathy was going in to the very hospital where she worked at as a doctor, a medical student, that very hospital, but not as a medical student, as a victim. Next, we revisit David Chesnoff's statement alleging that Kathy Durst had a substance abuse problem. When they moved back to New York with Bob's help, Kathy enrolled at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx, New York. The Durst family were large benefactors of the school, and that may explain in part how she got into the school. <clears throat> Kathy and Bob enjoyed all the benefits of living in New York City. Restaurants, plays, museums, and a very vigorous and happy social life. They traveled around the world together on exotic vacations, 
and were constant companions. However, along the way, there were serious bumps in the road and there were acts of violence by Bob that no one excuses. They're unacceptable. Nobody approves of it. And it was a reality of their relationship. No one's running away from that. But the evidence will further show that Kathy began using cocaine and she was drinking alcohol to excess. While Kathy got into med school, she had difficulties, particularly in her senior year, and had many absences. We now move on to the impactful moments from the opening statements cited by John Okanishi. First, here are the two admissions made by Robert Durst in the infamous hot mic bathroom audio. There he is. Here's one. Killed more. Horse. Next, we have the testimony of Nick Chavin that Durst confessed to him after a dinner in Harlem, New York. The dinner concluded, and it was then that I, as we got up to leave, I realized that we hadn't discussed the two things that he had mentioned, Kathy and Susan. I felt kind of weird that I didn't bring it up. We walked out the door. This is hard. We walked out the door. And on the sidewalk, I said, you wanted to talk about Susan. And Bob said, I had to. It was her or me. I had no choice. And then he turned to walk away and I said, you wanted to talk about Kathy. And he just kept walking away. Nothing more was said. Mr. Okanishi mentioned his vivid memory of the defense making a big deal of Durst's diagnosis with Asperger's syndrome, and yet never bringing up any supporting evidence of that assertion during the trial. Here is Dick DeGaron's statement that corresponds to John's memory. Bob doesn't make good decisions. It's part of his makeup. It's, a, it's typical of his emotional condition, which is uh, been diagnosed, and you'll hear some evidence about that, on the mild side of autism. It used to be called Asperger's condition or Asperger's syndrome. It's characterized by social awkwardness, by flat affects, lack of uh, outward signs of emotion, an inability to discern the feelings of others, an inability to read social cues. Other people often describe someone with Asperger's or mild autism as a little weird. Now that describes Bob to a T. John Okanishi told us that it was only when the trial resumed after a 15-month hiatus that he realized that Robert Durst had acknowledged writing the so-called cadaver note. When we listen to the way Dick DeGuerin offers that stipulation in his opening, it is understandable how someone who was not familiar with the facts of the case could have missed it. When Bob showed up and found her dead, he panicked. He wrote the anonymous letter so her body would be found, and he ran. He'd run away all his life. That concludes this special bonus episode of Jury Duty. 
Join us in our next episode as we hear from Carmen and John about their experiences during the two days of witness testimony in March of 2020 before the trial was suspended. We will also hear about how they spent the 15-month hiatus in the trial. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, produced, and hosted by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Terracone. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.